Well, I am extremely excited to welcome, again, someone who is not a stranger to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, but she brought Tony Stone to life in a sensational off-Broadway production at the Roundabout Theater called Tony Stone. And this is Miss April Mathis. Welcome to Black Diamonds. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, it, it is so great to catch up with you again. We did something pretty spectacular. And I say we because I just feel like we're all part of this Negro Leagues family. Yeah. I, I had the esteemed honor of welcoming quite a few cast members here to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum as you guys were in rehearsal. This was back in 2019. And that was so much fun for me to have the cast come out and our dear friend Samantha Berry and worked with us to kind of organize and coordinate a day trip. That was one heck of a day trip to bring you guys, yeah, to bring you guys out to Kansas City and kind of get you all immersed in this Negro Leagues experience as you all were prepping and, and particularly you playing the lead. And as I mentioned, you brought Tony Stone to life. What did it mean for you to play this role? Uh, well, you know, not having much knowledge of the Negro Leagues period, or <laughs> I will be honest and say baseball in general for that matter, to find out that she existed and had the career that she had and that she was the first woman period to play professional baseball, not just black woman, but the first woman uh, to put on a professional uniform was just amazing to me. It was just really exciting and fun. And, you know, as an actor, I try to choose roles that I don't feel uh, compromise who I am as a black woman. And you know, in 2022, that is still hard to do. So um, to have this role be something that, you know, she's not just a minor character, or she's not like the friend of or the wife of, but this is about her and about her story was just such a gift to be able to like sink my teeth into and dive in and find out like who this woman was, a career professional athlete you know, it was unbelievable that that was a story out there that I didn't know about and that I could share with the audience that uh, the roundabout, like this well-known, well-respected theater gave her this platform. It was such an amazing production from start to finish. The entire cast, the original cast was tremendous. And, and again, to have you guys here and you know, I so vividly remember walking you guys through the museum and afterwards we had an opportunity for you all to chat with some other aspiring uh, performing students. And, and that was pretty special. And so as you were learning about Tony Stone, what struck you about her? Just how bold she was, you know, like there wasn't, a special team for young girls. She was actually not <laughs> invited to play 
with the young white boys that this coach in her town near stadium was teaching, like this this clinic that he had, and she just kept showing up and kept showing up until he kind of had no choice but to take <laughs> her um, under his wing and she didn't have the shoes, you know, like she didn't have all the right equipment. Um, just that tenacity and going and barnstorming uh, on these bus trips with these grown men when she was a teenager and like men who kind of worked on the docks and uh, would have their little pickup games after work and her just having the boldness and the the keen interest. I think that's what it is more than anything. It's just like the, the strong desire and compulsion to follow this sport wherever it took her. That was something that was just amazing to me at the time when her coming from a prominent Minneapolis Black family in the Rondo where her parents were business owners and and had this uh, salon, there were different expectations for her to do things that, you know, I, I grew up in the South and in the 80s and 90s and there was, you know, her actions would still be considered bold, like being the only woman most times in predominantly male-dominated spaces. There's just a lot of bravery and maybe like a little bit of kookiness <laughs> that goes with doing that. And, and honestly, if I'm really honest, I think the kind of kook factor of it was the most fun for me. And yeah. you know, the way that we tell the stories, like you have to be a little... Uh, off the deep end to uh, make some of the choices that she made uh, for her career. And I feel like I, I understand that. And so that was kind of like my link into her, that kind of like at all costs. And I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what I look like right now, but uh, I, I, I know I need to do this. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing about the production itself is while the subject matter is obviously deep because now we're talking about the social conditions of a time that led us to even have a Negro Leagues. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about racism, Jim Crow. We're talking in the case of the women, sexism. Yeah. But the play itself is actually funny. Tony yep. is funny. She is charming. She is witty. And that, I think, probably surprised the audience to some extent, even beyond the, the novelty of the fact that he was a woman that played professional baseball with the men. Yeah, well, I think uh, that's, you know, really the credit to Lydia Diamond's play and how she saw Tony. What we know from Martha Ackman's uh, biography on her curveball is that she was great at these baseball stats. Like she could kind of rattle them off. She was more inclined in sports than in academics. And so the way Lydia wrote her and interpreted that information was to make her a little like maybe missing on some social cues and like very literal and matter of fact, which meant like, you know, some of the lewd jokes might go over her head the first time but not the second time. And, you know, like she could 
give as good as she could get. And like, you know, we have a lot of scenes where, you know, she's on those buses going to barnstorming games with these rough and rowdy fellows who, you know, spit and do all this stuff and, and talk about their women and things like that. And her laughing and hanging with them and sometimes not knowing what they're talking about. Like that was really fun for me because it felt like being with a bunch of big brothers or cousins, you know, that kind of like sibling aspect to it. Um, It also kind of allowed me to let my silly side out, (laughs) which people who know me know is just under the surface. If you're looking for it. What what struck you about your visit here to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum? Well, you know, it's a beautiful museum. I kind of didn't know what to expect. And like, it's a physically beautiful space. And when you come in, there's the statues of these iconic players. The bronze statues are life-size and beautifully rendered and I can't say that I see a lot of like life-size statues of black folks doing anything all in one place. So it was just kind of like visual pageantry of that was really impressive and edifying because, you know, you see it and you're like, this is about me mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. And it's been here. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know. Uh, You know, I mean, just even walking outside, like talking about that historic street and seeing like the different names of the jazz musicians um, on the cobblestones. Like I I took pictures of that before I even got into the museum. Then, you know, coming in, seeing this beautiful building, like really open and spacious. And it's like all of this is going to be about a part of my history that I didn't know about. And, um, you know, just to be able to walk through it and then finally get to like the Tony, Connie and Mamie section and, you know, to stand next to this exhibit about them with the bust of Tony um, was just really satisfying and validating. Like, you know, I kind of wish that I could have seen it as a kid. Like, who knows what I would have done with myself? Maybe I would have, you know worked a little harder in PE, you know, and had a little more interest. Cause yeah, you know, like I didn't grow up seeing baseball as having anything to do with me personally. Mm -hmm. And I find that interesting that you said that because the exhibit that April is conveying is one that we call beauty of the game. And it celebrates the three women who played Tony Stone, Mamie Peanut Johnson, Connie Morgan, but also the women who had prominent roles as executives and leaders and owners of teams, the likes of Hilda Bolden, uh, Olivia Taylor, Minnie Forbes, and of course, AKA the queen of the Negro Leagues, Effa Manley. And I find it really interesting, April, that when young girls walk into the museum and they get to that section, most of them, a lot of times, we get a lot of softball players because that's what mm-hmm. they feel that's the opportunity that is there for them is softball. Yeah. Baseball is kind of like you said, is a game that, well, I, I can't play as a woman or as a girl. And then they get to this exhibit and they see that this is not 
something that you have to dream about. It is real. It has happened before, and there's no reason that it can't happen again. And that's the seed that we want to plant in our young girls who walk into this museum, that it is absolutely okay to dare to dream about the possibilities, but here you see it in a very tangible fashion. It happened. These women played a long time ago. And, And the spark in their eyes... And to me, that's what this museum is all about. It's a tremendously valuable educational resource, but it serves as a tool of hope and inspiration for so many people who come here. And when you mentioned that, it just resonated with me because that's exactly what we were hoping would happen, particularly with that display. I can't overstate like presentation you know, we say representation matters and presentation matters too. Like this is like really well done, like the color scheme, like the atmosphere, like the the kind of like uh, circuitous route that you take mm-hmm. around. Um, you really feel like you're going on a journey through history and you're so well taken care of. And there's all these interesting figures along the way. Like, you know, like I saw the real King Tut. Yes, you heard that right. April is referring to seeing a picture of King Tut. No, not the ancient Egyptian pharaoh, but Richard King of the Indianapolis Clowns. King's nickname was also King Tut. He had been a first baseman for the Clowns in the 1940s, but is remembered much more for his comedy acts than for his playing ability. You see, before mascots became popular, teams actually had baseball clowns. Guys who suited up in uniform, but whose purpose was to provide sheer entertainment for the fans. Called the Clown Prince of the Negro Leagues, King Tut was known for playing with an oversized first baseman's mitt and for his ball-juggling act with Reese Goose Tatum, who played for the Clowns and starred for the Harlem Globetrotters. But King Tut was most famous for his pantomime shadow ball routine with a dwarf known as Speck Bebop. And Shadowball was a dazzling demonstration of baseball played without the baseball. Participants gave the impression that they were throwing and catching the ball, but the ball was imaginary. It looked so real, though, that fans could hardly tell it was pantomime. For their theatrical showmanship, the clowns were nicknamed the Harlem Globetrotters of baseball. They even made it to the big screen, in a way, as the team was depicted, albeit loosely, in the 1976 film, The Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings, starring James Earl Jones, Billy D. Williams, and Richard Pryor. <laughs> I saw Rube Foster and, like, putting faces to the names that, you know, we were reading about as we were starting to do research for the play. But just seeing these figures life size or some maybe even larger than life or or maybe smaller than life. I'm not really sure, but like um, it's just these statues and monuments mean something, which is why people get mad when their statues get taken down. They do mean something. So you can't just say, Oh, well, you know, this statue is just, uh, it's always been here. No, no, they are political. And they do have um, really powerful meanings. And it's, you know, it really is impressive to be in their presence. And uh, 
that's something that you can't get from a book. You can't get from a movie even. It's something about being there at the museum and being face-to-face with it that is unforgettable. And, and, and I'm really thrilled to hear that too because that immersion, you know, to be able to yeah. fully immerse yourself, as I like to say, on a nostalgic journey back in time. Yeah. And to understand that while the backdrop of those times were challenging, segregation was a horrible chapter in this country's history. The story here is what emerged out of segregation. This wonderful story of triumph and conquest. And as I remind people, April is all based on one small, simple principle. You won't let me play with you in the major leagues. I create my own. I I create my own league. And and as I also remind folks is there's something very American about that spirit. And and to me, that's what drives this incredible story. And it's so easy sometimes to get lost in the hardships that Mm -hmm. we sometimes forget about the joy that these athletes had playing the game. Baseball brought Tony Stone a lot of joy. Now, she had her challenges trying to navigate so that she could participate, but the game itself brought her a lot of joy. Yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't keep her from it. That's, <laughs> you know, like she, I feel like it's kind of the great love story, you know, it, 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 in the play for me, the, the big love story was her love of this sport. And as an artist, I can understand loving what you do so much that like nothing's going to come between you and that thing that you love and you're going to labor for it for the rest of your life. Like I love that quote of hers, when the role is called up yonder. When the role is called up yonder, I want to play baseball. When you see the production and the way that Lydia obviously wrote the play, it is poetic. But if you ever heard Buck O'Neill talk, he talked almost as if it was prose. You know, his, his voice and everything was poetic. And, and you feel that with Tony Stone. Like I said, I didn't get to know Tony. Mm-hmm. But I felt like I knew Tony after yeah. watching you portray Tony. Uh, because it was so magnificent. And how challenging was it to take on this role? What was challenging was really trying to get the stats because it was something that was important to Lydia that like in times of stress or confusion or, you know, any kind of uncertainty, that would be like Tony going back to what she knew. And we use this term from people on the autism spectrum, perseverating. So um, she would just rattle off these stats to herself one after another. And, you know, you have like four weeks and change to rehearse a play from getting the script to uh, getting it in front of people. And the stats were the last thing to come. So never mind that I had, uh, you know, all these monologues and, (laughs) you know, all these scenes. I needed to be able to rattle off a series of numbers, numerals, (laughs) um, in no particular order with no particular logic to them. Um, and I just had to learn it. So that meant she had to write it and that meant that she had to know what she was talking about when she wrote it. And so, you know, between, uh, the dramaturgy and research, 
and working with uh, this great assistant director, Kelly McAndrew, they came up with real stats that Tony would have been familiar with at the time, like the players who were playing or would have played at the time, you know, like Josh Gibson, Buck O'Neill, Cool Papa Bell, Satchel Page, but like not their career stats, but the stats that would have been relevant to her in the 40s, you know, 30s growing up, you know, what she would come to. So it took a while for them to come up with those numbers. And so that was also getting like kind of late in the game of saving the show. <laughs> and uh, so I had to, while I'm remembering my blocking and the choreography and, you know, basically where I am in space saying what to whom, I also had to like just memorize these numbers that had no rhyme or reason to me other than you're going to make up your own logic for them. Cause it's not like she's doing the stats of one particular player. She just kind of rattles off a bunch of different people. Sometimes it's like batting average. Um, sometimes it's like RBI, you know, it's just whatever they came up with and, that I think was one of the hardest things was just like coming up with my own mnemonics for those. I mean, you know, I say, luckily my, my grandfather was a mathematician and um, <laughs> my name is April math is so and math a bit. Math is so, a part of it. <laughs> yeah. So but that, that, that helped, but you know, it's like, is that in my head now, three years later? Nope. <laughs> out of my head, out of my head. I've slept since then. But, um, you know, it was a very physical show choreographed by the wonderful Camille A. Brown. Um, we had to do this um, really physically and emotionally demanding uh, dance number at the end because, you know, they were the clowns. They were the clowns. Um, there was uh, some minstrelsy involved expected in those performances which you know they felt all kinds of ways about minstrelsy or sometimes referred to as minstrel shows was a form of racist entertainment that developed in the early 1800s it featured songs dances and comedy routines based on stereotypical and demeaning depictions of black americans and to make matters worse these routines were typically performed by white actors whose faces were painted black. That method was known as blackface. Well-known African-American abolitionist Frederick Douglass strongly denounced this disrespectful form of so-called entertainment, describing such blackface performers as, quote, the filthy scum of white society who have stolen from us a complexion denied them by nature in which to make money, and pander to the corrupt taste of their white fellow citizens, end quote. Therefore, the Indianapolis Clowns' in-game comedy routines were sometimes criticized for playing into the harmful racial stereotypes promoted by those minstrel shows. They had a little person as a mascot, like... In the play, we really got into like the kind of tragic figure that was King Tut. And mm -hmm. uh, I believe that Philip Brennan, who played him, said that uh, in his research, he found that maybe he took his own life 
this this was a very emotionally challenging position to be in of like, yes, we're playing real ball, but like for some of these stadiums, the expectation is you will entertain as mm-hmm. well. And this is what entertainment looks like at this time for this mm-hmm. audience. So there was a big choreographic piece at the end of the first act where we're doing like kind of rudimentary baseball moves, you know, like pitching, catching, running the bases. And then that kind of morphs into a really grotesque kind of form of, of coonery that this black choreographer guided us through and, you know, was very helpful in the rehearsal room of talking about the how and the why of, of us performing that every night in tribute to black people in general in this time who were in positions of entertainment where minstrelsy was part of that. And um, me as an actor in my work, I have explored all kinds of like the dark side of entertainment. So I felt like I had access to it in a way that I could take care of my emotional self within it and it's meant to be something that is challenging for the audience to watch too like it's not anything that's uh meant to be enjoyed which was very interesting when sometimes people in the audience would like burst into spontaneous applause you know but what Lydia does is have a monologue that kind of contextualizes it and says yes we do that and that too is virtuosic and we do it better than anybody. And everyone knows that. And they know they can't touch it. And they can't touch the kind of virtuosity that we bring to this American game. And all of that, um, it was physically demanding. And, uh, you know, probably as much as I took care of myself, like, you know, it's just psychically exhausting. <laughs> so, um, but it, 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 felt, it felt safe and repeatable. And it felt like, essential to the piece um but yeah and then you know there's also moments where tony is attacked by one of her teammates on a bus at night like threatened uh Uh with sexual violence and that was something that we worked to make safe and repeatable and um but yeah i mean you know it, it goes to some some tough places, as you were saying, like one audience member came on opening night when you were there and said, seems like the first act is about racism and the second act is about sexism. And I just always thought about that because there was something I hadn't thought about that when we were making the piece. I would say yes and all of it all the time, but like we establish one thing in one act and then in the second act, we kind of like get more into Tony's personal story, I guess, which is where that comment came from. But it's not just funny. It's not just a history lesson. It does go there in that sense. But um, it was challenging, but in a way that I felt um, was something that I felt up to and was important and ultimately I felt proud of. Well, and, and, and here it was for me. Now, this is me on the outside looking in, and mm-hmm. this is your craft and all the tremendous actors who are involved. And I know that you guys don't necessarily do your work for accolades and that whole nine yards. You find something that you love, a project that you love, and, and you just want to go to great depth. But I got to tell you now, for me, mm-hmm. 
I wanted this play to be successful. I wanted people to love this play. And, and I was just overjoyed. I felt like a proud papa. And I had nothing to do with it. I felt like a proud papa, though, when all the reviews came back and everybody fell in love with Tony Stone. They fell in love with you as Tony Stone. And I, it just made me feel so doggone good that the story was getting out and it was being embraced by the theatrical community. And, and I got to tell you, it just made me feel good. <laughs> um, you know, I was, I was listening to a couple podcasts back and I was listening to you, um, the one where you talk about like Buck O'Neill finally getting recognized by the major leagues. And, um, you know, uh, I was really struck by your friendship with him and his words and also um, just how you are that like proud Papa Stewart <laughs> of this this legacy and you know thank goodness for you and for the negro leagues baseball museum it's just it's an important to honor these institutions and you know i would say that you contributed greatly to the legitimacy that this piece had you know like if if we had done this piece in a vacuum and we hadn't gone to the museum and we hadn't met you and, you know, Samantha hadn't made that connection, we would be missing something. <laughs> We'd be missing a great deal, you know, like that would be such a missed opportunity. So I'm glad that we got that right. And I feel like um, I got a lot of messages after uh, the big uh, Negro Leagues announcement Okay, so when's Tony? Is Tony in the baseball <laughs> Hall of Fame now? When's that going to happen? And, you know, it was like, ah, uh, technicalities, the cutoff year, you know, all of this. But I, you know, her being, having her rightful place in yeah. the Negro League Baseball Museum is very important to me. And um, I don't read the reviews, but those ones, like, I couldn't get away from it. Like, friends, <laughs> you know, friends from out of town, family members were just sending me quotes and things. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're like, okay, don't read it, but just let me, let me just send you this part. But the New York Times said. <laughs> and um, I was glad that the play was received how it was. And, um, you know, because I just... What, what good reviews do for us is get more people to the theater, mm -hmm. get more butts in seats, as we say. And I wanted as many bottoms in that theater as we could possibly have. And I, I ended up meeting some little baseball girls and boys and, you know, all kinds of folks that um, were super into Tony and, you know, including uh, Mayor de Blasio, who is like, I did not know this woman and I'm ashamed and mad because I'm a baseball fan and yeah. you know, yeah. was really grateful that he got to hear this story. Yeah. And to me, that was the beauty of this production is that now Tony Stone becomes mainstream in, yeah. in so many ways now. And the success of the play, I don't think Google Doodle happens without the success of this play. And, yeah. and certainly the work that we've done here at the museum to make sure that these stories don't just toil in anonymity, that yeah. people do get an opportunity to learn about these heroes of our game and these who gave 
so much of themselves to not only help make our game better, but to ultimately help make our country better. Yeah. And, and I know you've had so many great roles. And I know this is like trying to pick your favorite child. But where does Tony fall into the echelon of roles played by April Mathis? Well, you know, it's funny because you know who asks me this a lot is my son. <laughs> he's 12, he'll be 13 next month. And he's like, you know, so what did you like better, this role or Tony Stone? What did you like better, this other Tony Stone or this other role? <laughs> and um, there's just like, there's no comparison to Tony because I just got to do so much. Um, I got to be funny. I got to be in a mature relationship with the wonderful late, great Harvey Banks, mm, who is, yeah. you know, yeah, we God miss, bless his soul. We miss and love. There were scenes that every night would just crack me up. Like, I knew they were coming. Like, when she, um, you know, is trying to get work in the off season and she pretends to know how to weld. <laughs> <laughs> every night I was like, here it comes. Here it comes. <laughs> like, I love having, like, a favorite part of the show. I'd say for theater, I don't know if anybody's beat Tony quite yet. Like, um, I've had smaller roles that were really fun. Um, I've had roles that are closer to my own personality. I've gotten to do a lot of, like, silly things, silly costumes, but, like, the overall, like, stage time uh, level of production, caliber of castmates, uh director, playwright, trifecta. Um, yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, like I've done TV roles that have been fun. Like I got to play a fighter pilot, you know, gotten to play like a doctor obsessed with TikTok, you know, um, <laughs> during the COVID era. And everybody knows, like everybody in my friend circle, my peers, you know, I, I did a play here recently, uh, and it was the first play back since the pandemic for me, uh, Help by Claudia Rankin. Very different role, but I can't tell you how many people came up to me afterwards and were like, we love Tony Stone. And, you know, I don't know what kind of experience people have had these last three years, but the fact that they remember mm -hmm. and like... Some people came to see this show because they knew I was in it and I had done Tony Stone. Mm -hmm. Like the staying power of a show like that in people's collective consciousness is, is really powerful and doesn't go unnoticed by me. So. Yeah. I tell you, it, it's a, it, it was a brilliant production. I'm glad to see that it's been picked up now and is touring again yeah. uh, with a slightly different cast doing it now but it, it, and more people are being introduced to Tony Stone but there will only be one original oh. production and oh. one original cast and, and I think my friend Samantha Berry I think Lydia Diamond for yep. writing this brilliant play uh, the roundabout theater for bringing it mm -hmm. to fruition and an incredible cast that you were surrounded by and, of course, you, who just so beautifully and poignantly brought Tony Stone to life. Y'all, I'm just talking with Obie Award winner, 
April Mathis, who did win an Obie Award for her portrayal of Tony Stone. And again, I, I sound like a proud papa that, because I feel that way. Miss April Mathis, thank you for the sunshine that you bring us. Thank you for bringing Tony Stone to light. And uh, I look forward to welcoming you and your son back here to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. I hope sometime in the very near future, but I really appreciate you taking time out to hang with us on Black Diamonds and talk a little Tony Stone. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you, Bob. It was a treat. If you enjoyed these stories and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Diamonds is also available on the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcast. For more information on the Negro Leagues and the legends of the game, please check out our website, nlbm.com, and follow us on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC. Black Diamonds is part of the Sirius XM Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Additional voiceovers provided by Darnio Samuels. Editing and sound design by Rob Moore. Special thanks to Sirius XM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and Vice President of Sports Programming, Chris Eno. Sirius XM Podcasts.